You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Psychedelia. Psychedelia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2pm. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Good afternoon and welcome to the program uh, for your Sunday afternoon. This is in Psychedelia and you just heard from Freedom of Species who will be back one o'clock next week. If you want to find out more about Freedom of Species or any other programs that you hear on 3CR, the website is the best place to go, 3cr.org.au. There you can also subscribe to our podcast and find us on social media. My name is Nick and on the program we discuss all things drugs, uh, a conversation which is... um, is, is, it feels like it's at uh, a pretty high position in the national and, and state conversation uh, at the moment and uh, slowly moving away from a solely prohibitionist narrative as well. Sitting across from me, co-host Ash, how are you doing? I am good, thanks. We are going to start the program with a message from the Saifari directors. It's with great sadness we announced the cancellation of Saifari 2019. While we had full intention of going ahead with this, our 10th anniversary and grand finale, the current political climate surrounding festivals in New South Wales has made this something harder than ever before, and it really seems like a recipe for disaster. As such, we feel the best best choice is to pull the pin before further time and resources are put into this fight, this David and Goliath battle. We're truly sad to have to cancel. We had exciting things planned. Our biggest lineup ever was in the works. We had a venue with incredibly supportive, supporting owners on board and also a backup site. But these sites are in New South Wales, where the war on festivals has reached an all-time high. We did consider interstate venues, but options are limited in the ACT and we feel Victoria and Queensland are too far. Not only would a lot of our community struggle to have the time to travel so far, but this could also put people in danger from the added risk of more time on the road. An ironic consequence, given that the message behind this war on festivals is, quote-unquote, safety. There has never been harder times for camping festivals in New South Wales, with challenges and conditions slowly squeezing things too far. When a state government's hobbies include shutting down entertainment districts and enthusiastically enforcing noise complaints, events can't be held too close to cities or built-up areas. Meanwhile, the same authorities complain that events in rural settings are too remote. While the attack on music festivals is more public than ever before, this has been a battle we've been fighting for years, at times behind closed doors. The fight is usually with those that have never attended such an event and truly don't understand what it's all about, yet they've shown no mercy in wiping these events out in order to make a political point. Either they don't seem to understand the desire for freedom and the desire to be part of a community, or they do understand and feel threatened by this. As a crew, we've experienced both incredible highs and incredible lows. We had incredible highs as our community grew, our events grew, and we continued to receive positive feedback from both attendees and local authorities, but then balanced out with incredible lows as we landed in the sights of senior authorities whose message to us was to pack it up and walk away. We persevered at a cost. And unfortunately, this cost has made it unrealistic for us to continue in this current climate. From the very beginning, our goal with Saifari was to create events that we would like to attend ourselves. Events that were community-focused, with a great variety of underground music, filled with art and creativity, powered by love. We feel that we succeeded in many ways. Yet to move forward and completely alter the format of our events would be drifting from what we truly want to do. Excessive rules, bans on BYO alcohol, overly heavy police presences. This is not what we had in mind. Not to mention the ongoing increased costs in running events, which will push up ticket prices. Festivals with a ticket price of $500 are also not what we had in mind. But it seems likely that this is the way things are going, with one of the government's best weapons being the ability to force excessive costs onto events in order to phase them out. We are unfortunate to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when festivals are the new scapegoat of a failed government and their failed war on drugs. 
While drug-related deaths at festivals are a serious matter, they really do make up the tip of the iceberg. To put things into perspective, drug-related deaths at festivals on average make up less than 0.5% of all drug-related deaths in Australia. But festivals are an easy target and an insignificant sacrifice to a blind government with its head in the sand. To put blame onto festival organisers is an extreme measure. Although new conditions such as free drinking water, chill-out spaces, shade cover, these are almost laughable considering even the smallest unregulated rug... Considering even the smallest unregulated events in this scene strive to have these things in place. We had these things in place years before the authorities even knew we existed. From what we've seen, most event organisers show a greater care for their attendees than this government ever will. And their mentality of keeping you safe by punishing you is a backwards and outdated approach. An entire industry has collapsed in terms of bars and clubs, and the impacts are huge. Not only has it taken away thousands of jobs, but it has removed the potential for young Sydney-siders to get their foot in the door in the entertainment industry. Promoters, venue managers, production assistants, and not to mention upcoming artists have all been robbed of this. Keep in mind when voting at the next election. So what's next for Noisy Chicken? Well, even though we're wrapping it up with Saifari, we love our community and sure can't walk away from you. We will hold occasional one-off events, perhaps indoor ve- at indoor venues, perhaps community camping trips, picnics, and several of the crew are still involved in other festivals. So you'll see some of us around. If you have events that you'd like us on board with, reach out. Who knows? We may be able to assist. A sad day indeed to cancel Saifari, but we feel this is the best move. Rather than ending on a low, we ask you to think back of all the good times you've experienced at our events, think back to the friendships formed, the things you saw, heard and felt. Keep the spirit alive because the fight is far from over. To all of our crew and volunteers who worked tirelessly to make events happen, to the musicians who performed, artists who displayed their works, workshop holders who shared their skills, the council and emergency services who supported our events, and of course the punters who brought tickets and joined us year after year, we say thank you. Your support and involvement helped make Saifari what it was. Farewell for now, but not forever, the noisy chickens. And that was a message from Saifari, who have wrapped up their festival in the, um, I guess, the war on festivals that's happening. Now, I've been to that event, and I'll tell you, from the point of view of families and communities, I've never seen a stage at one of these kinds of events that was so filled with young families, with small children and prams, than at Saifari. They really did attempt to cater for uh, a broad range of the community and create a sense of safety and inclusiveness for all of the members of that community, including young families. And it's a terrible shame to see them go. And Berejiklian is doing nothing but tying herself in knots over this issue. Uh, hearing her week after week coming out to the media, trying to trying to understand her own policy and her own comments uh, is it, absurd. Um, uh, one of the uh, one of the things that's that's cropped up is some of the other festival organisers from other um, music subcultures around New South Wales have been going, "Whoa, hang on, now we're going to be captured under that." And then you have Gladys coming out and saying things like, "I don't want anyone who's been holding a festival for a long time to be worried. This isn't aimed at you. This is aimed at those people at high risk festivals that in the past haven't done the right thing." Yet her own uh, categorisation of high risk puts festivals like Blues Fest into the high-risk category, and she doesn't even realise it. Uh, we have also seen the cancellation of Mountain Sounds Festival. Uh, that was They announced their cancellation on the 9th of February, um, putting the cause of that on a last-minute user pays fee from New South Wales Police. So all up in the last uh, three months, I think, we've seen... Um, the Bohemian Beat Freaks Festival moved to Queensland. Mountain Sounds Festival have to cancel at the last minute and Saifari um, pull the pin anticipating the similar kinds of problems. This is an issue that we will continue to follow over the coming weeks, but right now uh, we have a very special interview for you for the rest of the program uh, with somebody who's been in Australia for the Victorian Alcohol and Drugs Association Conference and not along with a number of other events, including the Mind Medicine Australia launch uh, earlier this week. Uh, Professor 
Professor David Nutt is who we'll be hearing from in just a tick on in Psychedelia on 3CR. Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse and dynamic radio station. Nominations are due by Friday the 1st of March at 5pm. For more information, contact 3CR Station Manager on 9419-8377 or download the nomination form at the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au forward slash people. I think 3CR is the voice of the people, speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. This is In Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. We have a very special guest uh, on the line today, uh, somebody who's um, uh, who a, a particular incident about 10 years ago, actually almost 10 years ago now, uh, really got me particularly into uh, drug policy uh, because it was so obviously shocking and we'll, we'll just sort of go go over that incident because it happened um, in 2009 uh, in the UK uh, and in the UK they have a advisory council on the misuse of drugs which um, I think is sort of similar to what was proposed in in the recent um, Victorian drug law reform inquiry one of the recommendations was to was to create this sort of thing and the idea is that you have a whole bunch of people scientists people that aren't politicians uh, giving you the facts about drug policy seems like a good idea. So in the UK, they have this, uh, somebody, uh, a a council to advise on drug policy and uh, the head of that uh, committee in 2009 was Professor uh, David Nutt, uh, who is a neuropsychopharmacologist, knows his thing about drugs. And uh, in 2009, there was, um, there were a few... uh, 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 requests to change some of the scheduling so slightly different scheduling but very similar uh in the uk i think it's schedule a b and c and i think c is the most uh, extreme and then a is sort of least extreme and uh it, it was about moving things like cannabis and mdma or ecstasy uh down a schedule uh to more properly reflect the potential for harm that they had within them uh and this uh got seen by uh, some politicians as a political move uh, even though it was them doing the political manoeuvring. And uh, Professor Nutt was sacked from that committee. Um, and uh, because uh, I believe the reasoning at the time was uh, we can't have somebody who is speaking against uh, drug policy uh, and not towing the, the government message um and just amazing because this is this is they've got a bunch of scientists so that they can depoliticize it and they want to keep it politicized but right now we have professor david Nutt on the line uh david welcome to the program thank you very much is that a fair re- recollection of what what went on yep absolutely that's right uh, you have an independent committee but when it says something that the government doesn't like they shoot the messenger they get rid of the of the chair of the committee. Uh, how's how's the committee going today? Just just update us. Is it still uh, is it still around? Is it still valid, or is it a, it, a limp? It, it dog? goes. It chugs along. But we've I set up an independent committee, so most of the scientists on the original committee resigned when I was sacked. So we set up an independent committee called Drug Science. And you can go on the website and see it. Um, most of the intellectual discussion around drugs and drug policy happens in drug science, and the old ACMD really is just a, a kind of vestigial part of. Uh, of government. It advises government, but the government really never listens to it. So this has been the past 10 years of your life. Uh, before that, was uh, was drug policy uh, this sort of, um, you know, really changing the laws? Was that something that really, really drove you? Or was it that incident that really... No, really no, pushed? I mean, I, look, you have to remember that I, I was the chief scientist, effectively. I chaired the scientific committee of the ACMD for nine years, which is why I know so much about drugs, <laughs> so many committee meetings going through the harms of different drugs and going through writing reports on different drugs. Uh, so I was very, very versed in the realities of drugs and drug policy. But then they promoted me to the, be the, the, the top dog of the council. Uh, and, and, then, and, and they thought that that job was a government job. Which, of course, it wasn't. It's a scientific job, but that's where we fell out. I said, I'm a scientist. I'll tell the truth. They say, hang on, you're you're talking for us now, not for them. And uh, I said, I can't do that. I can't start lying. <laughs> you know, otherwise, my scientific credibility would disappear. So I started telling, carried on telling the truth, and they decided 
that too much truth was a bad thing, so they got rid of me. <laughs> but of course, I didn't shut up. <laughs> in fact, no. the worst thing they could have done was because now I'm telling the truth everywhere, including in Australia. So the Independent Scientific Committee on Drugs got set up a, a year later by you, and, and that sort of acts as a, uh, what, like a shadow council to the it's, advisory well, council? Can we call you the shadow well, council? I mean, we do much more than just we, 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 the, the ACMD. We, we are the go-to place. I think we're, we're the premier independent charity expert group on drugs in the world. I think you know, we basically, journalists, politicians, parents, users, they come to us to find out the truth about the drugs. And with the journalists, have you seen... Something that I've noticed in Australia is journalists, well, from my point of view, have started to, um, quote-unquote, do their job <laughs> in um, the last few years. Uh, by that, I mean they're often more accurately reporting the facts about drug incidents, about um, the, the conditions uh, that, that may lead to problems with addiction. Um, have you found in the UK that there's been a shift in the way that the media reports on these issues? Slowly. I mean, there's still a lot of what you would consider right-wing media who uh, still take a very puritanical, primitive, prohibitionist approach to drugs. Actually, uh, yeah, we may even be worse in the UK than you are here. But uh, but the most important thing is that there's a more position now. There's a debate, whereas 10 years ago, you couldn't get a scientist to go on the radio or the TV and say ecstasy was less harmful than alcohol. They wouldn't dare do it. Now everyone says, oh, of course, it's a fact. And then you argue about the relative harms, not the fact that, uh, that you can have the discussion. And, and very famously, uh, you wrote the, the paper Equacy. Um, it's kind of a bit of a... Bit of a, um, how would you describe it? A, a satirical scientific piece where you described uh, this new drug, Equacy, which in fact turned out to be horse riding um, and compared the harms of that activity to ecstasy. Yes, I, you know, it seemed to me that we, you've got to try to bring drugs into the kind of frame of reference that you know, people understand. And uh, if I got a moment, can I tell you the story? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> So uh, I'm, a, I'm, a psycho, I'm a psychopharmacologist. I treat people. Uh, one of the, my specialisms is treating people with brain damage. And uh, a few months before I wrote that article, in fact, the reason I wrote the article was because I saw a woman in her 30s who had suffered irretrievable brain damage from falling off a horse. And she, it, she damaged the front of her brain. Her personality had changed. Her husband had left her. They'd taken the kids away. She'd lost her job. She was in a desperate, desperate state. And, uh, and I started researching how dangerous horse riding was, and I found it was terrifyingly dangerous. So I stopped my daughters doing it. And, uh, uh, and I started thinking, well, why do people ride horses? And of course, they're actually, people who ride horses often, often are addicted. And that's where the word equity comes from, equine addiction syndrome. Uh, and there's a very famous journalist in, in Britain who rides a horse, despite the fact her, she's got a back broken in two places from falling off a horse. She, she has a, a, a kind of cage, a metal cage that she sits in to ride a horse. So it's clearly addictive, and she talks about the addictiveness. So I thought, here, here's an example. You know, I did the analysis, horse riding, particularly if you go jumping, is more dangerous than taking ecstasy. So let's try to put it out there in the public uh, discourse so people can actually understand comparative harms because you know, why would you ban a drug if it wasn't very harmful or certainly less harmful than horse riding but the paper itself is my most ever downloaded I think there's been over 7,000 downloads and, and it created enormous political ructions the horse riding community hated it because they didn't want people to know the truth about horse riding. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, it was seen as being satirical, but it, it was actually a very much a thought piece. It was actually trying to get people to think rationally about comparative harms. Of course, I failed because the politicians just couldn't. You know, the arguments I had with the politicians were just that they said, you can't do that. You cannot compare a legal activity with an illegal one. And I said, well, of course you can, because that's what, you know, you have to. How are you going to decide whether a drug's illegal or not if you haven't got some comparator of harm? And they kept just shouting at me, no, you can't do it. And this is, that's when I became very, very clear in my mind that making things illegal is a, probably the worst thing you can do because people then lose the ability to think rationally about them. Hmm. We, uh, over, over the past um, 10 years in particular, I think we've seen uh, the, the fact that drug laws are not about comparative harms really highlighted because we've seen a, a particularly uh, quick rise of a lot of uh, 
a lot of buzzwords for them, novel psychoactive substances, emerging psychoactive substances, research chems, al- mm-hmm. alternative drugs, uh, s- uh, synthetic drugs is one of those horrible uh, non-scientific-y yeah. uh, newspaper terms that they love to throw around, legal highs, all sorts of terms. And um, we've had very similar sort of um, uh, policy and market things happening in, in Australia that have been happening in the UK, although because you're very close to Europe and a lot of other markets, there's been a lot more things uh, across the UK than there have been in yeah. Australia. Uh, but but what we've seen is um, because of the way the drug laws work, because uh, a drug is illegal, if it's in a schedule, it has to be individually scheduled into those pieces of legislation and that's what makes it illegal. Um, yeah. But over, over the past uh, 10 years, we've seen... Uh, more drugs added to it, presumably off the back of uh, tabloid media reports, and I know you've got some awful tabloids there in the UK. <laughs> yes. um, of t- course, we inherited them from yeah, a certain Murdoch over here. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> they were spawned in Britain <laughs> so, by you guys. So, ta- yes, he, he is an awful man. We'd, we'd like to get rid of him, but, you know. Uh, but uh, tell, us, tell us a little bit about the, um, the road of... Uh, well, the road toward the psychoactive substances legislation um, that eventually came into place. You know, every time you men- people mention that word, my heart does a little <laughs> spasm. I mean, 27th of May, 2016, is written on my heart. You know, it's a, the worst day of British drug policy ever because they decided to ban everything that is psychoactive, even uh, apart from alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine. And, and those were exempted on the grounds of precedence. <laughs> I mean, it was a pathetic piece of legislation. They banned anything. You know, any drug that exists today or could exist in the future is illegal if it works on the brain, even if it makes you cleverer, makes you live longer, makes you a nicer person. As I like to point out to the current government, even if it made you vote Tory, it would be illegal. But then I say there's no drug that strong. So. <laughs> it's an absurd piece of legislation. It was, it was a... It, genera- it was generated from a moral panic about um, synthetic cathinones and synthetic cannabinoids. It was a lazy way of closing down head shops, which actually it, it didn't. But what it did was it stopped them selling relatively safe cathinones and, and, and cannabinoids. And then everything went to the black market. And now we've got a massive number of deaths from these because they're all being sold in the back streets and they're much more potent than the ones that were being sold in the shops. It's been an absolute disaster. And the police have decided to enforce it by uh, arresting people who use nitrous oxide. <laughs> and, of course, oh, really? they're the easiest people to find because they've got a balloon in their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, uh, it's just been a, a recipe for ridiculous policing of a almost harmless substance. And it, it just, you know, it's the actual, it's the kind of lowest level now with the drug laws of Scott in Britain to, to absolutely right into the gutter where they have no legitimacy in terms of harm or science at all. This is in psychedelia on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR digital and 3cr.org.au. Uh, hearing the voice of myself, Nick and Ash, and also Professor David Nutt uh, from the UK, uh, who has been over here for a uh, conference, which we'll talk about soon. But we're in the middle uh, of discussing the um, the psychoactive substances uh, 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 legislation. I, there's something that. Um, the intrigued because we got the same thing uh, in Australia. We we watched you and went, oh well, that's a good idea. And across all the states in Australia, uh, they introduced it, even though it was pointed out that it was absurd. I was uh, l- looking at some of the conversations that were happening in Parliament um, about what would and wouldn't be banned, and they would the most nonsensical conversations. Maybe I'll send you some Hansard one day if you feel like a chuckle, uh, David. But it it just was clear that nobody quite knew what the hell they were doing. But but the thing that they were doing was admitting that the drug the war on drugs has absolutely nothing to do with harm. They detached it, it they decoupled absolutely, it. Absolutely, absolutely. They turned it into a moral crusade. And that's the worst, worst justification for fighting wars. I mean, you thought we might have learned that since the First Crusade, you know, against you. So, you know, the point is, <laughs> we haven't learned anything in a thousand years, have we? It's unfortunate. <laughs> so just changing tack from um, the, for the novel psychoactives, um, I wanted to touch on something that you brought up in one of your slides at the VADA conference, and that was um, kind of a definition, a, a, an idea about redefining the way that we conceptualize harms with drug use. So instead of thinking about addiction, thinking about heavy use over time. Um, do you maybe want to unpack that a little bit for us and explain what yes, you meant I mean- by that? 
Um, I've been part of a, a European a European Commission-funded study that's been going on now for about 10 years, uh, looking at the whole issue of drugs, drug use and drug harm. And one of the insights we had recently was that actually uh, the term addiction, which I've always supported, I've always seen it as being a, a, a useful term because it's a strong term. It, it tells people you're talking about something important like cancer or heart attack. But addiction also has a downside. And um, one of the downsides, for instance, is, is that people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not an addict. I can stop when I want. So I, I'm not doing myself any harm. You know, there's a sort of, it becomes a sort of line which you have to cross in order to cons- be concerned about your drug use and we've certainly realized particularly with alcohol and probably the same i haven't done such intense analysis with other drugs that maybe a better term is heavy use over time if people use drugs heavily they're more likely to get into trouble than if they use drugs lightly and the policy implication of that is absolutely is very straightforward use less drugs if you're going to use drugs use the least amount you can to minimize the harms and we've done some calculations how you the health benefits of for instance if if people reduce their drinking even by 10 or 20 percent that would have huge huge benefits to society and what are the policy implications of that well they're pretty straightforward really um they are well the the, the, the really obvious one is to make sure there's no cheap alcohol available and actually, the Scottish government has, in Britain, the Scottish government has implicated, brought into um, effect now a minimum pricing for alcohol, so that you can't buy cheap alcohol. It used to be the situation that you could buy in supermarkets, you could buy alcohol at less than the price of water. And, and I think most people thought that was always a little bit absurd. Mm-hmm. So now you have to pay a reasonable price for even the, even the cheapest alcohol. Is uh, I think it was it's probably about a dollar a unit, a dollar for ten grams of alcohol. Now is the cheapest you can get it. And, and the great thing about that policy implication is it actually doesn't affect the, the average person at all because most of us are drinking alcohol that costs a bit more than that, especially if you're drinking in a bar. But it really helps deter young people and also the people who are very dependent. They, they're forced to drink less, which means that they're less likely to be dying as a result. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live.
own circuit bent with arachnid on 3cr this is in psychedelia and we are halfway through an interview with professor david nutt uh where we last heard from him we were talking about the term addiction and alcohol addiction and turning now to another uh favorite legal drug kind of um, mechanism that's sort of using these uh, using the economic tools that you have available the economic levers to uh, create behavioral change in people to, to get those positive outcomes but um, I know that uh uh, locally there well, in Australia that w- there have been some problems especially with uh, tobacco because we've had constant tobacco increases same sort of logic yeah. that we uh, can eventually yeah. sort of price people yeah. out of uh, creating harm to themselves but yeah. the other side is that we see people uh, foregoing things like food or not being able to pay rent properly because they want their cigarettes more than no, than that so right. that, that is where that is where addiction as a term is then becomes much becomes very useful because if I mean, if you are addicted to your cigarettes so that you cannot give up, even though you, you're spending all your money on them, then you do need a different strategy. And of course, that's where Australia, having led the world, I was such so proud of you when you you took on the tobacco companies and you went for plain packaging, and you went for hidden sales. Uh, uh, and I was so proud of you, and uh, I lobbied strongly for Britain to follow suit, and eventually we did. But I'm rather disappointed that you haven't now made the next intellectual step to find, to use, or to encourage the use of safer alternatives like vaping. So, you you know, having been ahead of the game, you're now way behind the game because vaping is the way to stop people who are very dependent on tobacco 
get off it. So, yeah, we have been vocal supporters of vaping both on this show and, and outside in the world. Um, maybe you want to just run us down a little bit about the English experience with vaping to get to where you are now, where it's vocally supported by public health lobbies, by cancer institutions. Yes, it's... Um so it's one of the things that we, drug science has pioneered is a technique of analysing the harms of different drugs or different formulations of drugs using a technique called multi-criteria decision analysis. It's a very sophisticated, the best way of dealing uh, or estimating uh, potential harms or uh, of complex questions like you know. Uh, drug harms, which because drug harms span everything, they span not just the harms to the body, the lungs, but also to the family and to society. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a, an MCDA on different forms of um, uh, nicotine products, going from cigarette cigars right through to snus, Swedish snus, and vaping. And we published in 2013 a paper which showed that vaping was probably 25 to 50 times less harmful overall to people and to society than tobacco. And that, because that was done so systematically, that was looked at quite critically by uh, organizations such as Public Health England, and they thought, this is right. So they started saying, the public health benefits of vaping are gonna be massive. And the, the, the health service take, took it up in Wales, uh, which has a, a devolved health authority. They gave, started giving out uh, e-cigarettes to people who were in hospital with chronic lung disease from smoking to keep them out of hospital. So it became rapidly endorsed um, as the way to reduce the harms of tobacco smoking. And we, know, we lead the world in that now. Uh, but in Australia, I got the, you know, the Australian experts like Simon Chapman, they, you know, they've, they attacked me viciously on the grounds that, that this, this, this actually was a, a dishonest piece of research and that we were told to write this by the Tobacco industry, which of course was rubbish. Well, that's the, the, the two main arguments that we hear in Australia to justify a continuing uh, ban on these products is the first one is that it will renormalize smoking, and the second one seems to be um, a, a conspiracy theory that the big tobacco companies have driven this whole whole kind of development of vaping. As I collect my check with my left hand. <laughs> no, I mean, the tobacco industry fought, viciously fought. I mean, they, they, for a long time, they tried to destroy vaping, and they, especially through the U.S. courts, they are, they're still partly trying to do that. But actually, now they've caught on. Now they realize it is the future, and uh, some of them are now moving into it. But, uh, but no, the, 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 the problem is, uh, if you... If you spend your whole life fighting the tobacco industry as some of your leading uh, tobacco harm reduction advocates have, you do realise, I mean, they are, you know, you, it's reasonable you get a bit paranoid because they have been extremely manipulative and, and deceitful. They, you know, they're a very difficult industry to take on. But the vaping industry isn't big tobacco. The vaping industry is a lot of little people who, wanna, who don't want to smoke tobacco but do like nicotine. And majority of, of vaping companies are tiny little companies that, that actually have, it's a sort of grassroots movement. It's, it's a popular movement. And, and we should be supporting it, not trying to destroy it. Uh, on the nicotine one, one of the one of the reasons why um, uh, we brought that up a little bit today was at uh, the uh, VADA conference. So this was why, why you're in uh, Australia at the moment. Uh, you're yeah. down for a few things, but the Victorian Alcohol and Drugs Association had their, uh, I think it's biannual uh, conference uh, on Thursday and Friday down in East Melbourne, um, and you were talking about um, a few different issues over over the over the Thursday and Friday. Um, but when you were talking about the multi-criteria decision analysis, I hope I got that right. Very good. <laughs> Um, uh, you were talking about this research with the various different um, uh, nicotine or, t- or tobacco products and um, I was on Twitter and Twittering away and then I noticed that the uh, director of Quit Victoria, uh, which is our uh, organisation helping people to, to stop smoking, uh, was, again, was part of the, the, the collection of uh, Australian organisations that are really anti-vaping. She she really got, uh, got onto it and was saying things... Um, 
again, just like it's it's going to help uh, renormalize smoking, and that she uh, doesn't believe that it uh, uh, that that it does actually work in the long run. That actually our, our sole goal should be quitting. And um, yeah, it was, it was it's very strange. And I suppose you, you've been running up a, against this sort of stuff a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I just Shall I don't I know if you've seen on Twitter. Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't had time. I've been so busy <laughs> giving talks here. Let me just let me just talk you through something. So it's almost inconceivable that anyone who starts vaping will turn to cigarettes. It's almost inconceivable because the difference in the experience is so clear. I mean, cigarettes are horrible, disgusting things that you have to really work hard at to get to use. And we see that now in in the UK and also in, in the States amongst children in the States, school kids, it, the, almost no one moves from vaping to cigarette smoking. Why would they? It, it makes no sense whatsoever. So this is a false fear. This fear that, that vaping will lead to tobacco smoking is just wrong. Mm-hmm. But of course, what they've done in the States, and I kind of think what you're doing here, is you've decided that that smoking vaping is the same as smoking tobacco. In fact, in America, it's even more absurd. In the U.S., if you vape uh, cinnamon, that's called tobacco. So they basically lump anything that you vape into the burden of tobacco and all controlled by the same tobacco laws, which is completely absurd. We we do do the same thing here. Because you're not allowed to sell uh, vape juices that actually contain nicotine in vape stores in Australia. So you have a product that contains no nicotine and no tobacco regulated as if it's a cigarette. As if it's a tobacco product, yeah. Yeah, completely absurd. And that's because there are people who who believe... yeah, uh, complex reasons that smoke any inhaling anything is bad. Now I, I don't subscribe to that view, and I think most people know. I mean, inhaling something that isn't harmful, why would that be bad? I mean, <laughs> people inhale asthma medicines. Tradi- you know, there've been traditional forms of inhaling um, cannabis or or even tobacco in bongs and things. You know, inhaling isn't intrinsically bad, but but people want a simple answer. They just want to stop people inhaling things, and they just lie about the harms. And, and that's just wrong. I mean, I, I, if people want to inhale safe stuff, why shouldn't they? This this might be a sort of a left field question, but um, sort of sort of part of this whole debate is um, what what is the role of. Um, of the prescriptive voice coming from from experts, from people that, that sort of know what they're talking about on these issues, the prescriptive voice in order to make behavioural change, because I feel like this is their focus. They're trying to prescribe a certain kind of behaviour uh, at uh, the expense of anything in between, nothing in between. It has to be abstinence. Um, is, is that a, a good way for people that are working in public health to be going, or are there some advantages somewhere uh, and then disadvantages in other parts of well, it? It obviously keeps them in a job because the government supports them, but uh, uh, it's, a, it's an, a really interesting, complex question. I mean, what is, what, well, generally, we know that lying to people isn't the best way of getting them to uh, engage in good policy. In personal policy, personal. So I mean, but also it's morally wrong because once you once you start saying, oh well, it doesn't matter, we can lie to them because it's good for them, then you begin to think, well, we can lie to them because it's good. Oh yeah, let's lie to them about war. Let's lie to them about you know everything else we want to do, which we don't want them to know the truth about. So I think the principle's got to be you've got to tell the truth because once you you know once people start to lose confidence in the integrity of, of, of health makers and policy makers, well, there's really no incentive. Or the, and then the only thing you've got left is a society where, you know, you go, how, go around and you have the police tearing cigarettes from the mouths of people, you know, which means it will just go underground, won't it? You know, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's prohibition has proven wrong on so, so many occasions, and, and the same is true with tobacco. I think that's what worries me. We'll leave that tobacco thing there, but I do get worried just finally that sometimes some of these, uh, some of the anti-tobacco lob- lobbyists are uh, pitching legislation that is uh, about prohibition. In Tasmania, uh, there was this idea to introduce prohibition uh, over a 10-year period or something, where anybody that's born after, I think it was the year 2005, yeah. would yeah. never be able to buy cigarettes, but anyone before that would be able to. It's just, yeah, it's sort of... Uh, 
uh, pro- them trying to prohibit tobacco. But anyway, one of the other um, uh, things you've been doing while you were here, uh, you, you helped launch uh, Mind Medicine Australia, a new organisation promoting uh, psychedelic research in Australia, uh, and that was on Wednesday night. And over in yeah. the UK, you've also been um, part of the Beckley Imperial Psychedelic Research Program, uh, where you've been involved with um, uh, research on uh, psilocybin and, and some other things. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, where the research is uh, at? In sure. The, in well, the world, we've, in the um, I mean, I'm a, as you correctly pointed out at the beginning of your program, I am a neuropsychopharmacologist. I study the effects of drugs in the brain. I believe I've probably given more different kinds of drugs to human beings than anyone alive, at least in a in a public scientific setting. <laughs> Legal. Uh, maybe in Russia they've done something worse, but anyway. Um, <laughs> and I'm very interested in what drugs do in the brain. I think drugs actually are the the key to understanding brain function. You can perturb brain function with drugs. And the reason drugs are so important is because drugs work on the systems which make the brain work, which are called neurotransmitters. And, you know, I've, uh, over my life, I've done a lot of work on all sorts of different neurotransmitters, including the serotonin receptor that uh, psychedelics work on. Uh, uh, but I've only ever been able to use blockers of that receptor. And if you do block all the serotonin, we were the first people to show 30 years ago, if you block the serotonin 2A receptor in the brain. It produces a very interesting brain state, a state of intense synchronicity of brain function, particularly when you're asleep. And then about 15 years ago, working with Beckley, decided it's time now, I'm old enough, if we don't start doing some work on psychedelic, on the agonists, psychedelics are agonists, the 2A receptor. If we didn't start doing that soon, it'd never get done. So I had a great student still with me now, a postdoc, Robin Carhart-Harris, and we did the first ever psilocybin imaging study using modern fMRI techniques. And uh, to our amazement, uh, we discovered that psilocybin actually didn't turn on the brain, it turned off the brain. And, and in fact, since then, we've done repeated that several times. We've done it with different imaging modalities like MEG. And we've done it with LSD and we've done it with DMT. And they all do the, these drugs switch off the key parts of the brain that organize and constrain brain activity. And under psychedelics, your brain then is liberated to, to work in a way which it hasn't been able to do for decades, not since you're a baby, really. So we get what's called an entropic brain as opposed to a synchronized brain, the opposite of the antagonist. And that entropic state can allow people to see things they've not ever seen in their lives before. They can make, make connections in between their feelings, their thinking, their behavior, their experiences. And they can reformulate their relationship to them. And that's why you get powerful changes in life attitudes under psychedelics and why we were able then to justify doing a trial in depression which is a study uh, a condition where people do have extremely distorted views of themselves and to our great pleasure and a bit to our surprise there was a, it had a profound effect to disrupt dis- depressive thinking as well so what's the um what's the next step for research is there anything that's on the uh, on yeah the well we started a second trial now so that first trial in depression was what we call an open trial. Uh, we weren't allowed to do placebo. The ethics committee said it's too dangerous. You can't give magic mushrooms to depressed people. They might all die. Yeah. I said it's pretty unlikely because a million people a year use them in Britain. No one's ever died. But, ah, but they're not depressed, you know. Anyway, so that kind of rubbish. So, so we. So now we're doing a controlled trial. We're comparing psilocybin treatment, uh, two trips, uh, three weeks apart, with the best, high, the um, the most powerful SSRI called escitalopram. And we're going to find out uh, whether the, these drugs differ in terms of their long-term outcome uh, uh, in depression. But also, more importantly, we believe they work in very different ways. And we've, the key to this study is to see whether the brain processes that lift depression are different between psychedelics and antidepressants. I, I believe they are. I've got a theory out there that says that they're very different. Oh, that's very interesting. So it's not a placebo, it's a comparative study. Yes, that's right. Cool. Hmm. I mean, placebo trials going on, I should say, as a result of our depression study being so positive, their company called Compass Pathways, Compassion Pathways, has set up a multi-center trial around Europe, and there, there is a placebo arm. Yeah. Do you think, um, with with the growing interest in psychedelic research and and with a with a with a psychedelic renaissance that's been going on for the better part of the twenty first century, are there are there risks that we're we're not all seeing? 
well yet? Are there risks of this? Because uh, it is a, a strange space, the psychedelic space. We know that we can control it in controlled environments, but that's not going to be the reality of uh, all the use, and especially as things liberalise. What, what, what are the risks? Are we missing something? I don't, well, I mean, the thing is, mushrooms, you know, as I said, um, we know in Britain, mushrooms are extremely popular. Young people go, in the autumn, they go and they get mushrooms and they have mushroom tea and they have interesting experiences with their mates. There's very little harm. Uh, I think there are stronger psychedelics. I certainly would dissuade people from using any of the new versions, the N-bombs and that, because those can have uh, unknown uh, effects because they're not pure psychedelics. Um, We obviously are developing psychedelics in a therapeutic setting, even though that, that doesn't necessarily mean there couldn't be adverse effects. But we're mitigating those. But if you look back historically, most of the hysteria about the scares, the harm about the harms of psychedelics, these have been generated based on just a few cases, and they've been massively exaggerated, and they've been put into people's consciousness to try to justify the banning of these drugs. Population studies, if you look at do questionnaire studies on people who use them, you discover actually that these people often are more intelligent got better quality of life, more sense of well-being than people that don't. So, so I'm not worried. I'm not worried. There will be there will be the odd person that suffers, but you shouldn't uh, deny a whole uh, everyone else specialty, a whole way of approaching uh, mental illness just because the, the odd person might have a, a bad effect. There are bad effects on all drugs, you know, even even safe drugs like antidepressants. Some people can have bad mm. effects. Uh, and I mean, I guess the way that I see see uh, part of what's happening in this psychedelic renaissance is that psychedelics feel to me um, like that that was my original thing that got me into all of this i was interested in psychedelics i was lurking on forums back when i was uh late teenager early 20s and uh, learning about what what mushrooms were the with the local ones in australia and that was you know my introduction to these things and uh over over the years i've sort of i sort of see that those experiences as it feels like a democratization and access for all of us to the mystical states to states that like if you think about it in terms of before the the printing press uh to get the knowledge that was in the books you had to find somebody that was able to read and access this information there was a gatekeeper and we've had gatekeepers on the mystical realms in terms of uh the the people that run religions the priests the prophets the whatever and maybe to another extent the philosophers um and there's always risk with democratizing but do you think that maybe that's part of it that we're democratizing access to a space that was controlled by those who who were putting forward the religions who were who were you know running the religious spaces at one level you're right i mean religion although most religions were founded on either psychedelics or some other alterations in brain function. I've got a new book coming out on that quite soon. Mm. Most most religion, I mean, pretty much every religion is based on altering your brain, whether it's through drugs or through meditation or something. But then, but but religious leaders tend to go from being uh, pioneers to being establishment. And when when a religion switched to establishment, they're trying to eliminate any other kind of, uh, of way of getting to the truth. And, and the Puritan religions are extraordinary. I mean, they because I mean they deny even pleasure on life <laughs> in life in order to make sure you get to pleasure in heaven. It all that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But it, I, I think we are. I think your point is right. We are democratizing people's access to it. A different way of thinking, and often a better way of thinking. Uh, it is in psychedelia on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and 3cr.org.au. Hearing the voices of myself, Nick, uh, Ash sitting across from me, and also Professor David Nutt on the line with us right now. We're almost out of time, but before we uh, finish up... Yeah, Ash, and unless you do have to leave us, um, I'd like to get into the weeds on weed for a moment. Um, yeah, so there's a couple... Well, one very specific question, um, and that is around... The Trimbos Institute in the Netherlands released a report, I think, in 2017, and it highlighted the potential of CBD, cannabidiol, to possibly have a protective factor for some of the psychological risks that may be present for people using um, a lot of high THC cannabis. Correct. Um, Can you run us down where things are at uh, in the understanding of the complexity of the the different cannabinoids in cannabis and how they may play out in medicine and in a recreational setting? 
So that's just a little question. Right, the bottom line on all this. Okay, so most traditional cannabis got over 100 different elements in the plant. The most obviously well-known one is THC, which gets you stoned. Cannabidiol, most you know, traditional cannabis, usually there's about equal amount. So cannabidiol is a kind of protective, it attenuates some of the effects of THC. In the, it, the changing production, particularly in countries like mine, you know, where we've gone for hydroponic high-intensity production in, in, indoors, has led to the development of skunk, which, where you, THC has been increased to the, uh, to the uh, loss of CBD. And that means, and there's quite good evidence now, that uh, the, the skunk can be certainly more uh, challenging to the brain, can be more psychotomimetic, can also be more likely to uh, cause dependence. Uh, and so what are the advice we're giving to people now is that you try to use cannabis combinations which have got the, uh, a mixture of THC and CBD. And in fact, people now are adding CBD to treatments of schizophrenia like antipsychotics and showing beneficial effects because it does seem to have an intrinsic antipsychotic effect. And we've got a study coming out next month showing brain imaging. You can see clear differences in the effects of skunk on the brain if you compare it with uh, um, or THC on the brain compared with THC plus CBD. But also in the, the cannabis plant, there's, there's you know, a low hundred or more other substances. But one of the most interesting is a, a one called THCV, tetrahydrocannabivirin, and that's a very powerful anticonvulsant. And I believe that's going to end up being a, a very important drug for epilepsy over the next uh, the next decade. And then the final point to make is this so-called entourage effect. I mean, there is an argument that if you use the real plant extracts, you'll get a combination of all these different substances. And together, they may boost the effects of each other or moderate the effects of each other to the, uh, maximize the benefits. And this is a really quite an interesting construct. It's, it's scientifically hard to prove, but it's certainly not implausible. And many people who've used pure THC, who've used cannabidiol, who've used a combination which is called Sativex, which is a medicine in some countries, they say that is none of those are as good as the mixed cannabis oil that comes from the plant. And that is credible, and uh, it's going to take a long time to tease out why that's the case, but the answer is it, it could well be the case. And that's why i am become uh, quite in favor of people using uh, plant extract rather than waste a lot of time looking for pure, developing pure extracts and putting them through the, the regulatory process, which is going to be far too tedious, long, and expensive, and produce medicines which are going to be out the price of most people. All right. Professor David Nutt is Professor of Neuropsychopharmacology at the Imperial College in London, uh, also the uh, founder of the Independent Scientific Committee on Drugs, uh, who are uh, leaders in advising on these sorts of issues, uh, even around the world. You can follow him on Twitter at P-R-O-F David Nutt, N-U-T-T. Uh, and David, thanks very much for, enjoy uh, for joining us. It's a great us. pleasure. Thank <laughs> you so much. Uh, um, uh, I hope to be back. Uh, we're looking to have a... Uh, a psychedelic medicine conference in Melbourne in October next year, so I hope to see you all there. Excellent. We look forward to that very much. Thank you, David. Cheers. Bye. Coming up on Tuesday in Sydney is the Sydney launch for the Be Heard Not Harmed campaign that will be happening at Best Music Warehouse in Glebe from 5pm. And also in Sydney on Thursday, the Don't Kill Live Music Rally will be at Hyde Park, 6pm on Thursday evening, uh, with uh, calls for the state government to stop killing live music in, the, in New South Wales, uh, form uh, some regulation that's appropriate for the industry and uh, hit back against the war against festivals. This has been In Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio. Thank you for your time today, 3cr.org.au, to find us on social media and uh, to subscribe to the podcast. And please stay tuned to 3CR because Queering the Air are up next. See you later. This is In Psychedelia. Comments, complaints or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website. 3cr.org.au and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. 
Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, DirectLine provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. And Psychedelia will be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear In Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.